Hello, and welcome to Leave the Ghost Light On, the podcast where I interview recent graduates and early career professionals in the live entertainment and performing arts industries. My guest today is Sarah Beck, a dresser and wardrobe manager based in Chicago, Illinois. Here is her story. Hi, my name is Sarah Beck. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I got into theater relatively young. My dad's a a musician and a college professor. I was always kind of involved in some sort of performance. I was on stage for the first time at six years old in a show that he was sound designing, doing some composition for, and they needed like a a kid to come on and cry and I could do that. I got the, the bug, as they say, pretty early. Through middle and high school, I really started to get interested in costuming, but I still, it didn't really solidify that it was something that I wanted to pursue specifically until I, until I started college. I started college at Sarah Lawrence in Bronxville, New York, and I really took to my costume design one class very very quickly. I loved the the professor. I loved the research that we did. This was very much an all-in-one class where we were learning some sewing skills as well as rendering and research and fashion history and stuff like that. It was really fascinating to me. I had also done a good bit of, of sewing up until that point, so I was kind of ahead of the curve on that in that aspect, and that that always felt good. But Sarah Lawrence didn't have a very robust costume design program. They had a pretty significant theater program, but it was really geared toward actors and directors and writers to an extent. I was designing main stage shows by the time I was a sophomore, but I also didn't really have the skills to do that. I was kind of going it on my own. If I if I really begged people, they would let me have an assistant for a show, but it was a lot of really late nights in the costume shop just trying to pull stuff together on my own. So I decided to not continue pursuing costume design at Sarah Lawrence. I took a year off and was living on Long Island with uh, with family and was able to commute into the city and take some odd jobs and some theater jobs and really start to get my feet under me in terms of professional theater work. I, over the course of that year, applied to SUNY Purchase. I was really excited to be in an environment where all of the aspects of design are really broken down into component parts. And so really being able to take time to work on specific skills in different classes and over the course of different projects. Between the work that I had done in that year off, which a lot of it was wardrobe management work, I had also done some assistant design work in that year off as well. As I got back into more of the design space, I really didn't enjoy it. (laughs) Once I got back into school again, really started to understand all of these different roles and how they interact with each other. It started to become pretty clear to me that I actually really didn't like working as an assistant and therefore that it was going to be kind of difficult to really get on that path to working as a designer. That was reinforced by a couple more assistant design jobs that I had while I was in school and then over like summer breaks as well. So after about a year and a half at Purchase, I decided that I had made a decent amount of career progress in that gap year. I knew that I could get work working as a wardrobe manager. I decided to start out into the world and see what I could do. I wasn't enjoying school. I didn't really like being there. I didn't like the a lot of the projects that we were working on. And I really wanted to be working. So I did that and I, and I started working. I started working as a wardrobe manager and dresser, sometimes picking up stitching gigs here and there. And by May of that year was dressing on an off-Broadway show, which felt pretty cool. At the end of that summer, I made the move to Chicago with my partner who is a playwright and he was going to Northwestern for grad school. and. I decided to come along to Chicago. I've really managed to establish a career here for myself. 
the thing that I really love about costumes about about and what really initially drew me toward costume design is I love I love fabrics I love cool patterns I love interesting textures and I'm fascinated by different elements of costume construction fashion history was always something that really fascinated me as well I was I always felt drawn to costume design because of that but when I talked about like assistant stuff when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of actually working as an assistant full-time, it's a really difficult job. There's a lot of running back and forth between stores and buying different things. My strongest memories of working as an assistant are literally running around Manhattan with enormous plastic shopping bags from Burlington Coat Factory, usually like full of shoes or something really bulky and difficult to deal with and like going in and doing returns and all of that kind of stuff. It's also a lot of paperwork, which I don't excel at. (laughs) So that was never an easy component for me either. But it's also when you're working as an assistant, at least in my experience, you don't get the same kind of artistic fulfillment that you do when you're actually designing. And I wanted the artistic side of it, which, you know, is not to say that assistants don't have any artistic license. They absolutely do. And it really depends on like who you're working with. There was one designer I worked for a couple of times who I just had a really bad relationship with. And I was frequently in a position working as an assistant where I did not feel like my input really mattered. Assistant worked a lot of kind of grunt work for for lack of a better word. When I was working as a dresser, I met a lot of people who were working full-time as assistants who had to be working two or three shows simultaneously to be able to make rent because of the way that assistants are paid, which is usually on stipend as opposed to an hourly rate, whereas wardrobe work is much more likely to be paid out hourly. And that's something that is really pervasive in entry-level stuff for designers. And even as you go forward for design and assistant work is, you know, you have these stipends that kind of seem like a lot of money, but then once you actually break down the amount of hours that you're putting into that work and the compensation that you're getting back, it's really not where it should be for what's expected of you. I saw these girls like running in and out, literally in two texts at once, as a dresser, I was seeing the designer more than the assistant designer, which is not something that feels like the way that that structure should work even. I I don't know. But it, it seemed like the path of putting in your hours as an assistant so that you can start to get full design jobs just felt more stressful than it's than it's worth. On the very most basic level, the designer and the designer's team, so that includes their assistant, they put together all the pieces that we're going to need through the run of the show. And at the beginning of tech, they hand them off to the wardrobe department. We make sure that everything is where it needs to be, is clean, is presentable, is kept in good condition through the run of the show. If there are any quick changes, we're the ones who set those up and choreograph those. If there are tears in something where there shouldn't be, a lot of times that's on us to to repair those things, buttons that fall off. We're there to preserve the designer's vision as much as as possible throughout the run so that they don't have to worry about it, so that they can hand off their design and know that it's going to be the same on closing night that it is on opening. That's the most basic what wardrobe does, working as a wardrobe manager and as a dresser. In small productions, those two roles get pretty blended. I have worked, I don't even know how many jobs where my official title was wardrobe manager because I was the only person working in the wardrobe department, but I was also effectively acting as a dresser, someone who's actually backstage with the actors, doing quick changes, making sure that dressing rooms are set up the way that they're supposed to be, costumes get where they need to go, and that everything is, you know, steamed and pressed that needs to be for the top of the show. Whereas the wardrobe manager is more like the back end side of that, where you're doing more of the organizing, the paperwork, putting everything together in such a way that it runs smoothly. If there's a show where there are multiple dressers working under one wardrobe manager, the wardrobe manager is assigning tasks and making sure 
that everything that's need to be covered is covered. So my favorite show that I've worked on uh, hands down is Cambodian Rock Band at Victory Gardens. What was that? April of, of last year, April 2019. It sounds right. An incredible script to start out with. And then we had just really fantastic creative people working on the show. That cast is absolutely my favorite that I've ever gotten to work with. They were just a delight because they had a lot of time together as a cast before we even started into rehearsals because they they are featured as a band in the middle of the show. And so they had to actually like practice like a band. I think it was like a year before we even started rehearsals that they were coming together and rehearsing as a as a, an ensemble. So they were like this really tight-knit group and just really delightful people to work with. The sh- and the show itself was just beautiful and, and, and a really powerful piece of theater. But the reason I said favorite thing that I've worked on is a different answer than best experience because that show was also a nightmare getting into it because we were in a situation where there had been a huge amount of turnover going into that production at Victory Gardens. The production manager, I think, had been hired or I think she had like started like three days before I did. That's like not a ton of preparation time. There basically was no institutional memory going into that show. And so we were all kind of flying in the dark and trying to figure out what we even had available to us to tackle this really technically complicated show because it's a live band on stage for like half the show. There's a lot of audio requirements that go into that, obviously. We had moving set pieces that we had a three-person crew to deal with. I was one of that three-person crew. If I can help it, I'm not moving scenery. I'm not above it, but as much as possible, I want to be focused on my department because that's what I know how to do. It was me, the ASM, and our A2 rolling around things on stage between scene changes and then running back to wherever else we needed to be to finish doing our other our other tasks. It was a little chaotic, especially getting into it. Tech was really, really rough. But tech is always rough, so I don't know, who, who even knows? In terms of process, definitely not my favorite experience. People and end result, absolutely. When it comes to best experience, I don't even know what I would say for that. It's important to note that how you experience a show and its process does not necessarily equate to the experience of working out so much as I got a lot of satisfaction from the work I did. Right, right. And that is definitely something that I felt with Cambodian Rock Band because I was definitely being pushed to work at a level that was a lot, you know, I was taking on a lot more responsibility than I had really had before. And that definitely reflected in like my level of stress during that process. But I also learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself and the way that I work. It was a really valuable experience, even though it was really difficult. But there's difficult and then there's under preparation on behalf of the institution, which I like to draw that line there because I'm all for difficult work. The reason that we have these, you know, established theaters is so that they can alleviate a little bit of that, that burden. When you were talking about wardrobe management versus assistantship and design, um, yeah. a lot of what you were talking about really fell into work-life balance. And if you wanted to... right. Talk more about your oh, feelings totally. about that. I really love theater. I really love being able to go in for tech and have however many 12-hour days in a row. You know, we call them 12-hour days, but they're 12-hour days for actors. For us, they're like 14-hour days. I really love that intense working experience. I really love the schedule of say a regional theater where you're working, you have a really intense period of one to one to three weeks when you're in tech and previews, all hands on deck all the time, really intense work, really, really difficult, kind of fighting this thing into existence. And then you relax into a regular show schedule, and then you have a couple of weeks off before you start your next tech. I really love that cycle, and I find that it's the way that I work best is having that 
little bit of rest between shows and having that ability to recuperate and <laughs> come back for tech again. One of the things about designing and, and assisting is that you don't get that the breath out of actually running the show. You just go from tech to tech to tech to tech to tech. And I know it's like slightly more complicated than that. I know that there there is more preparation work. It's kind of a reverse process for design where you're working steadily normal hours for several weeks in process, buying and building and doing production meetings and all of that. And then that culminates in tech. But again, as, as I said, working as an assistant, a lot of times you're juggling tech weeks where, you know, you really could be in tech for a couple of months just across different shows, you know, and that's something that I know that I can't handle that. I don't operate well at that level of stress for that amount of time. And I get really frustrated when that's explicitly expected of you to climb the ladder to work as a designer. You know, you have to be able to really make yourself miserable for a prolonged period of time to earn enough dues to go forward from there. And I frankly think that's bullshit. I understand why things happen that way now. Literally, if we just paid assistance more, it wouldn't be as terrible as it is. <laughs> and I feel quite strongly about that, especially the whole system of stipend pay just doesn't work for the type of work that's actually happening, especially for assistants. I think they need to be paid hourly because when they're not, it's a lot easier to take advantage of them and take advantage of their time. It's pertinent to hear that now, especially as there have been conversations going on about the work schedule. Since now everyone's yeah. had to stop and they're not doing the hustle in the same way and realizing they like it. They like not yeah. doing it like that. And it's when you're so focused, it's tunnel vision. Especially when you have this one goal that you're trying to work towards and that you've been told there's only one way of working towards. And so you have to lay down and embrace it or you're not going to make it through. One of the things that I think a lot of people are realizing during the pandemic, during you know our various periods of quarantine, that although it can be exhausting in its own way, having some free time, having the ability to take a breath is so vital to feeling like a whole person, which is one of the reasons that I love that I love working a show schedule. I've never been a morning person in my whole life. If it was up to me, I would wake up at 10 o'clock every morning and start my day from there. And when I'm working on a show, that is exactly what I do. My day starts at 10. I basically have brunch every day <laughs> because I'm eating a you know slightly more substantial breakfast. And then I have most of the day free where I can run errands or I can just go out on a walk, go walk around in the sunshine. And I don't have to be anywhere until five or six o'clock for call time. Because I end up getting home so late, I usually will eat dinner after I get home after a show instead of counting my pre-show meal as dinner because that just does not work for me at all. That's essentially my lunch. And then when I get home, I eat dinner and then I do a normal amount of unwinding after work before I go to bed, which means that I don't go to bed until one or two o'clock in the morning, depending on the length of the show that I'm working on. It all kind of works very beautifully with my, <laughs> with my personal sleep preferences, but it's also, there's something about having the day free that feels so... <sighs> I don't even know the right word to describe it, but it's it's so freeing to just have that time during the day. I was always frustrated as an assistant not having as much artistic license as I wanted to, but I also realized that working as a designer, you don't have you have artistic license, absolutely, but depending on your director, you might be making some decisions that you really would not do on your own by the nature of the collaborative process, you know, you're going to lose a little bit of yourself in that. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but it's not what I want from my own creative expression. And having the day free, yeah, makes me free to 
be able to pursue my own artistic interests outside of the context of anyone else's artistic output. I'm only beholden to myself, which of course does make it a little bit more difficult to complete things. But when I do complete things, it's something that I'm really fully satisfied with as opposed to something where I felt like I had to make compromises because someone didn't agree with my decisions. What were you doing before March 13th, 2020? I was working as the wardrobe apprentice at Steppenwolf Theater Company here in Chicago. They have an apprenticeship program that basically lasts the length of their season. So I was part of that season's, the 2019-2020 cohort. I was specifically within that the acting wardrobe manager for their Steppenwolf for Young Audiences production of not your perfect Mexican daughter. And we were, I think we were in the, not quite the final week of performances, but we were getting ready to send this show on a short tour around to different juvenile correctional facilities in Chicago. And so we were like, all of that preparation was underway. Well, I had just turned 25 uh, on the 11th. I remember specifically being very conflicted about whether or not I should blow out my candles on the birthday cake that I was surprised with at work because (laughs) there was just enough noise on the 11th for me to think, hey, maybe I shouldn't be uh, sending air droplets or uh, sending water droplets all over this cake that we're about to share. But backstage is such an intimate space anyway that we figured that (laughs) anything that one of us had, we all already had at that point. So I I did blow out the candles and I I have to say, I, I still feel uneasy about that decision. Nobody got sick, but I still just thinking about it now makes me like slightly nauseous. What was the process of the shutdown like for you? I don't want to say it was chaotic because honestly, I feel like Steppenwolf was working really hard to get information to us as quickly as possible. It's just that the circumstances were changing so quickly that it felt like I was getting new different information every 15 minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to forget the exact days of how this went down, but basically because this was part of the Steppenwolf for Young Audiences series, our performances were primarily school matinees. So we were doing 10 o'clock performances and we'd have school groups come in. And because we're working with Chicago Public Schools, that was kind of the first canary in the coal mine for us. Or actually, no, I'm sorry. The first sort of flag that we got was in our preparation for the tour because the juvenile correctional facilities were the first ones who set up the flag saying, we're not letting anyone who doesn't need to be here in this facility from now till whenever, because it's, you know, it's that much more risk. So they were the first ones who were really canceling these performances because we just, we can't take the risk of bringing this amount of people into the facility at once. That was the first flag. And then pretty shortly after that, Chicago Public Schools also said that they were canceling any field trips, which were our our, uh, student matinees. At that point, we still had a few public performances, which were evening performances. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was after the Thursday matinee. Yeah, I think it was after the Thursday matinee. Our stage manager got everybody, got the cast and crew together for an announcement, which apparently I was told later the announcement that was being made at that meeting changed from when the show started that morning to the end of the performance when the meeting was actually happening. That's how quickly things were shifting. At that point, I believe they said no more student matinees, but we will still have our final, you know, three public performances or whatever it was. I'm not sure if it was if we were supposed to have a public performance that evening or the next evening, but a few hours after everybody went home, we got the notice of no, we're not going to be doing any further performances. Steppenwolf is shutting down all public performances. It was devastating to find that out, especially since everyone had kind of left the theater with the idea that they were going to be coming back for at least one more show. We were in the middle of a run, you know, we have a lot of things that have to happen to close down a show. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how many of those things we could 
realistically do. I remember coming in on Friday, we had an all staff meeting. There were a few shows that were running at Steppenwolf at the time. I think it was Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, Bug in the Downstairs Theater, and Plano in the little uh, black box theater. We had our all staff meeting where they sat everybody down and said, all right, everyone in the administrative offices are going to start working from home as of Monday. So clear out anything you need to, bring your laptop, and we'll go from there. Obviously, for production, we can't work from home. So the original plan that they had announced on Friday was that we would come in on Monday, and then we would basically just work as much as we needed to through that next week until we had everything finished and packed up and ready to go. By the time that we got in on Monday, our technical director came around and said, no, this is the last day. We're doing as much as we can today, and then we're going home. We don't want to make people keep coming in, getting on public transit, all that stuff. So basically every time that I walked into the building, I got a new set of information that was entirely different from the last (laughs) time that I had been in. Yeah, so Monday, we just tried to get everything as much done as we could. For us, that meant a lot of frantic laundry, just trying to get everything washed so that we could at least get it back up on a rack and sort of organized. I know there were a lot of things that didn't end up getting washed, but we were at least able to get some of that done. And then I got my laptop and my little tote bag and I went home. Then we started trying to figure out what I could even do from home, because at that point, Steppenwolf had decided to keep all of the apprentices on, to keep everybody on as long as they could. We started having weekly all-staff meetings over Microsoft Teams or whatever, where they would kind of give us the rundown of where we were financially, which I still really appreciate Steppenwolf being so upfront about their financial situation and how much they could actually do to help people out just in terms of what money they have without anything else coming in and just how that breaks down. How long can we run on fumes, basically, was the message of each meeting. Honestly, it was really important that they do that and break all that down because at the same time, they were building an expansion to the building. They they were building a new theater space as an addition to the original building, which is, you know, a multi-million dollar project. So they had to break down for everybody, like, all of the money that is earmarked toward the building can't be touched for anything else. There are like all kinds of legal reasons why we can't just scoop some out of the building money and keep people employed for longer, which is a frustrating thing to hear, but it is nice to at least hear it instead of just being left in the dark. You know, they really did try to to keep us in the loop with things. First set that they gave was, you know, we know the way that we are right now, we can make it through, you know, mid-April. I think it was like early April at first and they moved some things around and then it was then it was mid-April. And then they said, and then from there, you know, we'll have to make some changes and probably get this amount of people through to to July. And that is basically how it broke down. I was doing some paperwork kind of stuff, working from home. Honestly, I wasn't doing all that much because there wasn't all that much for us to even do. Everyone was so kind of shell-shocked at that point that no one was really too concerned about degrees of productivity at that point. And then mid-April, we were still doing monthly apprentice seminars. It's part of the apprenticeship program. I think it was our second seminar in quarantine. We were told that we were going to be laid off. We, along with, uh, I think, part-time staff and overhire were the first batch. Definitely didn't love getting that news, but they were really helpful in like figuring out what our what our options were. And they made sure that we were eligible for the unemployment assistance. I definitely didn't love getting laid off at the time, but looking back at it, them laying us off instead of just waiting out the end of the apprenticeship, which would have been the end of May, actually helped people out more because it made them it made them eligible for unemployment insurance when it's a little bit more questionable when the apprenticeship just ended, whether we would have been, been eligible. That was actually, I think, a really good move on their call, even though we were pretty upset about it at the time. <laughs> Everyone was just so upset that we didn't get to finish out our apprenticeship with a bang and and with going to the annual Steppenwolf Gala, all of those fun things that we had been looking forward to all year. I don't think anybody knew that we were still going to be in the same place come November. Tell me more about the Steppenwolf Gala and why it was so important. 
obviously we're all disappointed that we didn't get to go to the big fancy party, but it's also, it's a really important networking event. That's not the kind of formal networking that happens on a job, but this informal social uh, networking that lets you feel like a part of the industry, especially the Chicago theater scene where having relationships with people outside of the context of work can be so important to getting hired. What do you do when you don't have access to the same opportunities that you would normally not in a pandemic? And I think this is a big question for the industry at large. There's going to be a loss of new people who would have been new voices, exciting voices. That'll be a loss in the industry. Not to say that there's hasn't been a series of losses. And this is we've all been mourning as we've been going through this pandemic. I think it's something that's important to consider. How can we come together as a community so that we don't lose out on what makes theater such a different industry from others? That said, what has been your experience during the pandemic thus far? It's been difficult. It's been frustrating. I've enjoyed the opportunity to, you know, have a little bit of free time and the ability to work on some some side projects more seriously, but it's hard. I've had a really hard time sort of recalibrating the way that I think about my work going forward. I don't think I was totally deluded at the beginning of the pandemic that it was going to be over so quickly, because I feel like a lot of people thought that and a lot of people were sort of talking about that or, or talking about things in those terms. But I definitely thought that I was going to be able to come back to theater, not quickly, but in a short enough time frame that I could kind of keep my career on track where it was. Whereas now I know that I need to be getting work outside of theater and I've had a hard time doing that. I have found myself not wanting to send out anything other than my theater resume, which is so silly because those are not the jobs that I'm applying for. But it's still the things that are on that resume are the things that I feel proudest of in terms of my work. I feel like I was really finally getting to a point where I had established a career for myself. I had a path laid out for myself that all just kind of got swept away. Navigating that loss with trying to figure out how to go forward in a different way has been really challenging. I think a lot of people are finding themselves in similar positions. I was waiting for the end of summer to see where we were at. And now that we're well into fall and seeing theater potentially not opening up till next fall makes it a difficult prospect to say, well, I'm just going to keep waiting because it's already been long enough. Yeah, there's you get to a certain point where you can't wait anymore. The waiting itself is, I think it can be harmful in a way where if you're constantly on edge, if you're constantly holding on for two months from now or three months from now, you get into this really bad cycle where you're not taking the time to really think about what's happening to you in the present because you're so fixated on a future that might not be. People who have been entrenched in the industry have already established careers and can either adjust to keep moving forward or are asked to do the virtual performances or this, that, and the other. Whereas for those of us who are early career recent graduates don't have the same access to the same resources necessarily, unless you're very, very lucky or very, very well connected. Right. And I'll say in addition to that, I'm all for virtual performances and I have seen a few that I did really enjoy. I'm glad that people are doing it, especially if it's giving people work, but For the more technical side of things, for the production side, there's not all that much that we can do in the context of a virtual performance. I can't run a wardrobe track, you know, across multiple locations. There's no role for me to play in that virtual performance space, which also like makes me nervous for other reasons. I'm glad that people are doing virtual performance stuff, but I think you're totally right that, first of all, those jobs, when there are jobs for people in production and, and for designers and all of that, which is not always the case. A lot of times it is just actor, director, writer. There's this like narrative that comes out around that that's like, oh, theater is saving itself by reshaping and like doing these different things, which is, again, great, but it totally discounts the number of people 
who are involved in a normal theater production who literally don't have anything to do in a virtual production. They're paring down as much as possible. That's why I said it scares me for other reasons. I'm not going to say that theater could function without wardrobe managers. If there's that much of a money problem, they can find a way. And there are going to be a lot of theaters with really bad money problems going forward. It's at least concerning to me to like see the amount of productions that are paring down as much as possible. That then becomes the habit. I understand that it's necessary, and I know that if they had their way, they wouldn't be paring down that much. It definitely makes me uneasy looking forward. There is some institutional reshaping on the other side of this that cuts down some of the backstage jobs. It's especially difficult for those of us early in their career because so much of how we get into these positions are being those extra people on a show. Toward the future where theaters are not going to have money or or will close if depending on what happens, there is no relief for them. It turns into a situation of, well, where can we go to get the experience or meet the people or do the thing? What has been your biggest day-to-day challenge? My biggest day-to-day challenge has been finding interesting things to do to keep up my creativity while also leaving space for my emotions. My instinct right now is to just kind of shut down and distract myself as much as possible with TV and Twitter. Fighting that instinct as much as possible is my biggest day-to-day challenge. Just making sure that I'm breaking up my days, you know, and pursuing different things as over-discussed as it is. Just... Baking bread has helped me stay in that headspace of making something and getting my hands into something. I enjoy the fact that there's a lot of exercise that's built into my work. I try to heighten that whenever I can, trying to do things that are going to make me be active (laughs) in a similar way where I'm active because I'm doing an activity and not because I'm going on a jog or whatever. It's really hard. It's really hard. What would you be doing if there wasn't a pandemic? I was supposed to be starting a dresser job at uh, Looking Glass Theater here in Chicago. They do pretty long runs of their productions. And this was a production of Looking Glass Alice, which is their like signature show. It was actually supposed to overlap with the end of my apprenticeship by about three weeks. I was going to take a week off from the apprenticeship to do tech or Looking Glass and then come back and do apprenticeship part-time for the rest of that time. And then going to do shows at Looking Glass at night. So I was supposed to start the first week of May and go through mid-September, I think. Or I think maybe it was the first week of September and then there was an extension possibly into October. I had had that whole summer planned out. I was also supposed to take a pottery class that I had been saving up for. Did not get to do that, which is a massive bummer. I was trying to really take advantage of having such a long run and so not having tech breaking up every couple of months or every eight weeks or whatever it is. None of that happened. And then I had a potential job on the horizon, which is now kind of still potentially on the horizon, but less so than it was previously, which is kind of for pandemic reasons, mostly not though. And the the theater involved is making some changes internally, which needed to happen. And it's a good thing that those changes are being made. I'm a little disappointed that that probably includes me not working there in the future, but it's okay because it needs to change. I was also looking into starting to do TV and film here in Chicago. I really wanted to join the union. My goal was to join the, at least start the process for joining the union before I turned 26. Looks like that's not going to happen. But that was the way that I was thinking about it was that I am going to need healthcare. I was really hoping to get in a situation where I was lining up to get into the uh, into the union and do more TV and film work. So that was my trajectory. <laughs> what would you like to see done to help other recent graduates and early career professionals such as yourself? On the large scale, 
doesn't have anything to do with the theater industry itself. But I just think that there's no way forward without some kind of national uh, stimulus program and student debt forgiveness. I think that would do so much toward just helping people get more stability back into their lives and be able to then make good decisions for themselves instead of being in this space where you're kind of grasping at any opportunity, even if it's not a good working situation. I I know so many people who have worked for Postmates and DoorDash and all of those evil, evil companies, uh, (laughs) you know, who are making like $3 an hour or something, depending on when you're working and where you're working and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I know somebody who was uh, working full time in a service industry job. And when things started to open back up again, she was getting some hours back, but she wasn't working. They weren't able to bring her back on full time or they weren't able to give her full hours. I don't even think she was making the same hourly as she was before. And so she's having to supplement that because she's no longer eligible for unemployment, obviously. So she's had to supplement that with working DoorDash and Postmates. She's working significantly more hours each week than she was when she was working full-time pre-pandemic and she's making significantly less money, which is just absurd. That can even happen. But for theater industries specifically, I know that big theater institutions are in a really difficult place right now. I don't expect that there is all that much that they can do without some kind of national stimulus program. And I do think that there should be essentially a bailout of the theater industry. But I would really like to see a lot more apprenticeship programs, actually, that pay My apprenticeship was paying minimum wage, but it's minimum wage in Chicago, which is $13 an hour, which is not great, but not terrible. And certainly better than, you know, say an internship. I've definitely seen apprenticeships that pay less. I think there's so much opportunity in the theater community for internal community support. I think that there are opportunities for people who are more established to take early career people, you know, under their wing either just in a normal mentoring capacity or in a way where there is some financial support tied to that. I don't really know how that would work. Pretty shortly after things started collapsing here in Chicago, the League of Chicago Theaters started a theater workers pandemic relief fund that was, as far as I am aware, is primarily funded by people in the theater community. There, you know, there were outside donations, of course, but a lot of it was just people who still had jobs supporting people who didn't. And I think that kind of community support is so important, but I think that it extends beyond just the financial support, making it more commonplace to have these sorts of interdependent relationships, being part of a cohort of apprentices at Steppenwolf was a really important thing for me just in terms of how I think about the theater community as a whole. There's the potential there for something where there is this internal support. I also would really like to see, we're talking about union membership, I would really like to see unions making more of an effort to reach out to the young people in theater in their areas, you know, like I understand kind of why they don't. This is talking from a Chicago perspective. So I, I, you know, I, I think the situation is a little bit different in New York. There are not a ton of union theaters in Chicago. They're actually pretty few. And partially because of that, and because it's been that way for so long, there's a lot of stagnation about increasing union membership and increasing uh, union jobs. I think that I would really like to see more on the ground organizing in different theater spaces where maybe there wasn't a union presence, presence before. I understand why theater institutions don't want to be union shops necessarily, but I don't think the theater industry is sustainable without them because people get burnt out and they leave. We're doing a lot of really highly skilled labor here. There's so much very specific knowledge that goes into all of these jobs. And I think it's ridiculous, frankly, that there is so much resistance on the part of big theater institutions towards unionizing. I know there are plenty of arguments about who is allowed to do what in a production and could never take on any run crew duties in addition to, you know, in addition to dressing based on certain union rules. But also, 
I tore my meniscus in January, moving a heavy set piece, and I had to be in physical therapy for the first uh, several months of quarantine. I think that there is so much potential there for community building within the framework of union organizing. And I think that kind of community building is our best hope for having a more sustainable industry and having an industry that is genuinely welcoming to its early career professionals. People love to bemoan theater as a dying industry, but there's so little willingness to turn around and open it up to the younger people who want to work in theater and who want to continue theater as an institution going forward. I get very frustrated hearing older, more established people saying, well, how on earth are we going to continue to reach out to new audiences and blah, blah, blah. You do that by bringing new people in. You do that by not being so siloed with the same group of people that you're that you're comfortable with and you start bringing new voices and and new people into the industry with genuinely open arms instead of in the context of you're going to work for us for as little money as we can legally pay you and you're going to love it or you can leave that mentality needs to go out the window immediately if we're going to have any hope of sustaining things going forward even with the understanding that everything's always more complicated and you're not seeing the full picture as you're one part of the whole machine or the industry. It's definitely from the perspective of an early career person. When the industry becomes so toxic to everyone in it, something that everyone loves, it becomes a, well, why can't we be respected? We are an industry that is important and matters and we need to stop defending that. You always have to defend theater. It's always dying. Hamilton made so much money for Disney. Totally. (laughs) The toxicity in the theater community is something that needs to be jettisoned immediately because we need to be able to rely on each other. We need to have genuine community. That's not just people networking. It's people like genuinely caring about each other. Not that it doesn't happen in Chicago. I was very okay leaving New York because there was so much of that mentality of the only reason to get to know anyone is the amount that they could impact your career. The only reason to talk to people is if you can network with them, which is obviously an oversimplification. That is not the way that everyone operates, but it is a persistent mentality in theaters, you know, these transactional relationships where I think there is so much opportunity to have genuine community. I think for an early career professional, that sense of community is something that maybe is available in the union that we, because we're not part of the union, don't have access to yet. And the fact that we would have to push to get there can be exhausting. And like you find genuine connections and you find your community, you find the people you can work well with. And because I come from the perspective of lighting and sound, like you work on crews, you get to know people, but I, I know it's a very different experience for a wardrobe or costume because it can be very solitary in a way. I said earlier, you know, how many jobs I've worked where I am the whole wardrobe department. If I'm lucky, I get along with the ASM. I get along with a crew on the show. You know, I, I, you know I'm lucky if I get along with them. I've made friendships that way. Some of my really close friends here, I've met that way. But it's not until I take a stitching job that I'm really more in touch with people in my niche (laughs) in theater. And actually, there is a costuming professionals group in Chicago that is not associated with the union. I've been to a couple of their meetings and definitely see that as a really important resource. They run workshops and have general meetings every couple of months that's all great. They're kind of more costume shop focused. And I wish that there was just more opportunities like that in different aspects of theater and some that are actually less specific in terms of job title. Having these bigger umbrella spaces that are maybe a little bit more social and maybe a little bit less. These are specific things that we're working towards within our profession, which is also important that, you know, I don't, I don't want to diminish the power and the importance of those What if the local wardrobe union hosted a mixer or something for early career professionals that 
is open to people who are not in the union, just open for people to come. And then that's a that's a recruiting tool for them. I would love to be recruited to join the union. I don't think it's going to, I know that it's not going to happen. I know that is something that I have to pursue on my own and work up towards that way. I don't think it should have to work like that. I think the unions should be proactive in this and be organizing community first and then organizing the union further through that. Here's hoping. Well, and, you know, we can all have so many uh, potluck dinners right now. (laughs) Such a such an imminent possibility to uh, have a big party with a bunch of strangers. Do you think the industry will bounce back and in what manner? I think bounce is a generous term. I think the industry will come back. I think it's going to take a lot longer even than people are predicting right now. I think audiences are going to be really, really hesitant to return. And until audiences return, we don't really have an industry. But I think theater will come back when it comes back at first. It, it, at least if things keep going the way they are now, the people who are able to come back are the most privileged among us, those who who could just wait it out, those who have to take other subsistence jobs in the meantime are not going to be as ready to drop those subsistence jobs and rush back to an industry that might not be totally on its feet yet. I think that there are a lot of theaters now that are at least saying that they're focusing more on equity, diversity, and inclusion, but I think that it's going to take a lot more work than just than what's currently happening in that context. It's going to be a totally different environment than when these conversations started to happen. The conversations that are currently being had are important and it's good that they're being had, but in actual practical application, once the, the industry gets around to getting back on its feet, those conversations, I think, are going to have to look a lot different. And I'm just really hoping that the industry decides to make the necessary adjustments in that context. Everyone's favorite term, we'll see what happens, or we'll cross that bridge when we get there. It's hard for an early career person to hold their breath for so long. When you're ready to take the first step and you want to do it, it's difficult. What I really hope and I think what I'm probably the most concerned about is that when shows do start to come back, I really, really hope that theaters don't try to cut corners with pay. That is the favorite move of a lot of theaters. I think that they know that people in the industry are going to be desperate enough to get back to theater, that they will work for minimum wage. I really hope that there are enough people with enough sense and enough compassion <laughs> who are making those decisions to not save money on on people's pay, that they cut corners other places. It's also the feeling of as an early career person, you can never criticize the industry that you're in because there will always be reasons yeah. for why you shouldn't criticize, whether it be, oh, you're too inexperienced or you don't know the person or... You don't want to ruin any potential future you might have because that's the whole big thing with theaters. You don't talk bad about anybody because you may know someone who works with them or you work with them, but then that turns into a situation where you can get abused and people do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things I was saying about assistantships earlier with the stipend pay system. You know, you're in a situation where the designer that you're working for has complete control over what you do for them, especially if they have a good amount of clout in the industry. They can cause some serious problems for you if you're not willing to bend over backwards for them. And that's a serious problem. What does theater mean to you? Theater, it's, this is so cheesy to say, but theater is the closest thing we have to magic. At its best, it can take a person and 
bring them into an entirely different world and let them look around and see what that world is like. And sometimes that's someplace that's not, it's not real. Sometimes that's just seeing the world that exists differently through other people's experiences. I think it's, it's one of the most important tools that we have for provoking empathy. I think it's a hugely important part of society, not to get too grandiose, but it helps people live in society together and know each other. People underestimate how magical the experience can be. And I think one of the hardest parts of the pandemic has been to not experience it because you have to be in the room. It doesn't work as well through a screen. It's not the same experience. Yeah. You need everyone else around you. Yeah. The collective experience is a huge part of it. It's a really big component. I do think that there is a burgeoning world of digital theater that does a lot of the same things and captures a similar sort of experience in new media. And I've seen a few examples now that do it really, really well. I've also seen some that do it really poorly. I do think that there is the possibility for more digital performance. I think that has its own its own importance and its own its own impact. It has its own impact, you know? What is your dream? My dream job is a well-paid staff position at a regional theater where I can exist in that in that schedule that I love so much that I talked about earlier. Having the chaos and intensity of tech over a week or two and then going into performances and getting to relax a little bit and then having a, a week or so either completely off or, you know, with just significantly reduced hours where I can travel or have leisure time. My dream for theater is that no one has to have a day job, (laughs) that people who want to work in theater can just do that and can live on that. When you're looking at yourself in 10, 15 years, what are you envisioning your life to be? Well, I mean, for one, I want to get to a point where I make almost all, if not all, of my clothes. I would love to have the time and the space to have a permaculture sort of, I don't know if I would go full farm, but like a, a large permaculture garden that I can live off of. I don't know if I necessarily think that I even could get to the point where I'm growing all of my own food, but I would like to at least be able to try to grow as much of it as I can. I would love to be doing that in conjunction with other people, you know, not just on my own. And I don't know if that looks like a community garden in a city or if it's a if it's a more rural situation in terms of a career. I would love to, you know, be doing something that gave me the flexibility and the free time to be able to to really devote myself to a project like that. I mean, you talk about 10 years in the future, it's really uncertain what that 10 years in the future is going to look like right now. There are a lot of different ways that could shake down and it really depends on what we do right now. As much as I want to talk about, you know, my individual future and theater as a whole, it's something that is really inescapable in my mind that climate change is here and we're going to have to make some major changes to be able to cope with it, let alone try to to reverse it. I maybe a little off topic, but I follow this Twitter account called Build Soil. It's this guy who is uh, kind of methodically going through what needs to happen to be able to start having any sort of sustainable agriculture in the U.S. And one of the things that is a serious issue is 
there is a large amount of soil in in this country and 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 in the world that has been so overworked and stripped by single crop agriculture that it can only be viable with extreme use of fertilizers and that kind of you know human intervention there are ways to combat that there are ways to help shift the makeup of the soil one of the things that that this person is doing is he has a project of trying to I think it's like trying to plant 10 million chestnut trees in the next, like in the next 10 years. There are a lot of different reasons why chestnuts are the ones to use. They're a a food source. They also trap and store carbon along with other plants. They help to replenish the soil where, where they're planted. I've become very enchanted by his vision of the world where city streets are lined with edible chestnut trees and every fall there's a harvest festival where everyone goes out with their, you know, little, uh, uh, little rollers and, and goes and harvest chestnuts and, and, you know, roast them on the street and grind them into flour, all these different things. They're this hugely useful plant. That's something that I think about a lot when I think about 10 years in the future is 10 million chestnut trees. Anything else you would like to add or share? Well, I want to thank you for having me on as your first guest. I feel so honored. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This was so cool. Thanks to Sarah Beck for the interview. This episode was produced by me, Nina Field. For more information about me or my guest, please visit my website at www.ninafield.design. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation.